Hello and welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome true crimes in history. My name is Em. And I'm Autumn. And we are your hosts. And we are back we with are... another two-parter. Oh, <laughs> Damn. <laughs> like, I didn't know you were going to go there. I was like, that was usually my job. We didn't say something like that. But yes, we are back with another two-parter because I figured that we would need a break from the two-parters, even though like... I feel like last episode was kind of a two-parter because it was two and one, but at least it was like it was just one, one episode. But to be fair, we've only ever done one two-parter. Yeah, I feel like I just like the two-parters are always like the fucking just brutal case. <laughs> or it's like, because like there's, I mean, there was a ton, there is a ton of information about the toy box murders. Mm-hmm. And so that fucker. I just like kept getting like further and further and further and further in. And I'm like, I want to just like, tell as much as I can about, like, everything that happened. Cindy Handy. Cindy Handy. fucking banjo. Dude, I still can't believe that's her fucking name. Cindy Handy. Dude, yeah, when you were, like, they're probably sitting on their fucking porch playing banjo. What'd you say? You're, like, eating scorpions. (laughs) (laughs) Just fucking munching on mosquitoes. (laughs) That's fucking gross. They're probably like, yeah, I caught me some gator last night. (laughs) Gator with (laughs) noobs. Oh, yeah, there's just some fucking gators that came from New Mexico, and they're just Listen, chopping on maybe gators. there's, like, some fucking swamps or something. In New Mexico? I'm pretty maybe. sure New Mexico is, like, the exact opposite of swamp. It's all desert. The whole state. The whole there's not one part of there that might have a little bit of a swamp. I don't think so. The only, like, the... <laughs> Jesus <Jeez>. Christ. <laughs> the cats are on some fuck shit again. And, of course, Bubby probably started it because he starts everything. And Hello? then he gets his ass beat and yells about it, as y'all probably just heard. Um, but yeah, no, they're probably fucking. They're doing something. They're doing some fuck shit. In they're New probably Mexico. That's fucking all I squeezing say. lightning bugs and snorting them. <laughs> <laughs> squeezing lightning bugs and fucking snorting them. Like, yo, you want to do some drugs? And they pull out a handful of fucking fireflies and like crush them up. Like, yo, this shit is crazy and just fucking. Hork them you up can their see nose. Lightning. <laughs> see the light, man. People are like, um, I'm scared and I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm gonna leave. <laughs> I think I'm gonna go now because y'all are fucking weird. No, seriously, like they were fucking weirdos. And these two dudes that we're talking about in this case are also fucking weirdos. And this was like, I was doing the research on this, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, there's like six victims, like that's not gonna be crazy. We did that much with like the Chicago Ripper Crew episode, mm-hmm. and we were able to get through it and everything. Titty soup. Um, but this one, I just again got like down a rabbit hole and was just like finding, and I actually found a book to like I downloaded it and I was able to get like an electronic copy of it. So like a lot of the information came from this book, and they go like really in depth in the book, obviously because they're telling like the background of them and like details of like all the murders and the aftermath and yada 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 and so I was like well I guess I'm gonna include all of this and then a few hours later I had a massive fucking document with all my notes and then I texted you I was like this has gotta be a (laughs) two-parter like it would be another like two-hour episode if we were to sit here and do the entire thing in in one fell swoop but not to keep you guys uh on a cliffhanger any longer or the case we're doing today well y'all would have known if you follow the Instagram so maybe this isn't even a cliffhanger um, but the case we're covering today for at least part one of this case is the, Off what? track, but I just thought of it. Um, any update about the merch? Um, no. <laughs> 
We'll talk about that after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hello. Bubby's up going to say yeah. But anyways, as I was saying, the case we're covering today is um, that of Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Harris, also known as the Toolbox Killers. So we did Toy Box. Now we're doing Toolbox. 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 Aw. Oh, he's falling. I <laughs> know. Oh, I know. Oh, Oh my god, he's upset. Just every episode, there just has to be a little bit of Ralph absolutely screaming into the microphone, or it's not truly an episode of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but this is um, a pretty brutal, pretty gnarly case, if anybody has ever, like, I always assume that you know nothing about these going in, Mm-mm. but okay, bet. I told you a little bit about how this was, like, the case that inspired the whole like pedo van like yes. kind of thing yeah because yeah, mm-hmm. these motherfuckers were rolling around in a big silver van with no windows <laughs> so now if you're on the street <laughs> and you see a van you're like that's a pedophile van this is kind of what inspired that whole you know uh superstition i guess i can say so yeah we're gonna jump right in um i'm just gonna start kind of with a little description of their first victim. I thought this was kind of a, a different way to start off. Because I... Oh, look at him. He's, he's so cute. for a second and was like, pet me. Of course. He, like, will hug your hand, too. Like, he's oh. like, don't stop petting me. I literally need all this attention. You um, want to get one. <laughs> all right. We are jumping back to June 24th, 1979. This is when 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer was leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach, California. As she was walking, she was approached by two men driving in a large windowless silver van. The men slowed down. One of them called out the window. They offered to give Lucinda a ride home. They also offered her some marijuana that they had in the van with them. Marijuana. Marijuana, the devil's lettuce. Uh, (laughs) And Lucinda was known to be like a very kind of like like a good girl. Like she didn't get into trouble. She didn't smoke. She was on her way home from church. Mm -hmm. It was like quarter to eight at night and she's literally on her way home from church. So she, of course, she's like, no, thank you. Like, I'll just walk home. I'm not interested. So she rejects their offer and they... Drive off, they go a little ways down the road, and they end up just, like, parking and stopping the van in front of, like, a random driveway on the same street. So, Lucinda's like, I don't know what they're doing, I'm just gonna keep walking. So, she continues going the way she's going. Um, She watches as one of the men comes out of the van, kind of, like, stands by it, and as she walks by again, he says something to her he starts to try to talk to her and she just you know tries to brush it off like as you do with any fucking creepy ass man that's trying to talk to you you're like oh no like eh, i'm not interested whatever Mm -hmm. so she kind of does that but before she can you know get past them and get away from the van this man snatches her and forces her into the van um once she's shoved into the van they turn the radio up to full volume to drown out her screaming And then the man who grabbed her and the other man, they hold her down. They bind her legs with duct tape, and they also, like, gag her with the duct tape as well. Um, I'm not going to get super into the details right now, but just know that Lucinda would not survive this encounter with these two men. And she became the first victim of the sadistic pair of serial killers named Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, known as the Toolbox Killers. Okay. So, who were these people? So, Lawrence Bittaker, he was born on... What are you looking at? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what he's looking at. He's seeing shit. Cats always be seeing ghosts. It's spooky season. There's probably ghosts in here. Oh. <laughs> you see ghosts? He's just resting. Yeah. He's fucking lazy. 
That's why he's fat, because he just eats and does nothing. Oh, the goodest. He eats boy. and tries to start fights that he can't finish. <laughs> oh, the goodest old man. That's his whole MO. All right. Anyway, <laughs> so Lawrence Bittaker was born on September 27th, 1940, um, to a biological mother and father who did not want kids. So basically, the second he was born, they gave him up, and he was immediately placed in an orphanage in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was soon adopted by his adopted father, George Bittaker, and his wife, who for some reason they never fucking named. Like, I could only find the name of his father. But George Bittaker and his wife adopt Lawrence. Um, George worked in aircraft factories, and his job required them to move frequently. So they lived, like, in Pennsylvania, then they moved to Florida, then they moved to Ohio before finally settling in California, where this case takes place. Um, There's not a whole lot that's actually known about Bittaker's childhood, but experts, like, after kind of reviewing this case, reviewing his psyche and his M.O., Um, They suggested that he most likely suffered a lot of, like, feelings of abandonment, like, not only from being abandoned by his biological parents when he was born, but also, like, feelings of abandonment from his adoptive parents who, like, he didn't have a great relationship with and he felt, like, very unloved by them. Um, Bittaker's criminal history began when he was just 12 years old, so he was starting real early. He started with, like, small petty things, like his first crime he was arrested for was shoplifting. Um... This didn't deter him, though, after, like, he was, he got arrested, and he gets let go, and he's like, I'm right back into it, and he's <laughs> fucking shoplifting again. Um, he continued to steal and was arrested for it, like, multiple, multiple times over the next four years. He would also later claim that, like, his theft-related offenses, like, that he was committing through his adolescence, like, they were attempts, he said, to compensate for that lack of love he received from his parents, he was basically like, if they're not going to look or give me attention in a positive way, maybe they'll give me attention in a negative way, but shit, at least they're paying attention to me. So he actually had a fairly high IQ of like 138. So he was wow. like super intelligent. Mm-hmm. So he found school to be like very boring and very tedious. Which like a lot of people with very high IQs, they have those same feelings. Mm-hmm. So he didn't end up finishing school. He dropped out in 1957, obviously before he was graduated. And within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, a hit and run, and evading arrest. Um, For these offenses, he was sentenced to prison at the California Youth Authority, where he remained until he was 18 years old. So when he was released, um, one of the first things he discovered, like when he tried to get in contact with his parents, was that they actually disowned him. And they just completely moved to another state. They're like, bye, see you. Yeah, they're like, peace, goodbye. (laughs) You're fucking up. We don't want to deal with you anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, like... The last time he saw his parents was before he was in prison. So, like, when he got out, like, he never saw them again. Wow. Never. Um, so, yeah, Lawrence Bittaker was starting off very early <laughs> into a life of crime. Like, he was, you know, that was his whole thing. He's like, I'm going to steal shit, and I'm going to get in jail for it, and then get let out, and then go steal some more shit, and get in jail, <laughs> get let out. Um, so, Roy Norris was, he had a little bit of a different, like, upbringing and story in the beginning of his life um however they were pretty similar that they both came from like a broken home situation though like Bittaker's abuse was like complete neglect and Norris's was based on the fact that his parents just didn't fucking want him mm-hmm. so he was born in Greeley Colorado on February 5th 1948 he had been conceived out of wedlock 
And his parents, basically, they're forced to get married because this is 1948. You're not having kids out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. Like, so they were forced to get married because the social stigma around having children with somebody you were not married to was, like, basically grounds for complete and utter, like, just social, what's the word I'm looking for? When you're, like, ostracization. Like, mm-hmm. they're going to be completely ostracized if they did not get married before Roy was born. Mm-hmm. So... His parents, like, openly and actively blamed him for, A, forcing them into getting married, and, B, having children when they weren't ready to. Which, also, fuck that. Y'all were fucking with no protection or whatever the fuck you were Every doing. Well, you could have yeeted the fetus. I, no, abortion was illegal. They couldn't get an abortion. And I guess, like, they're, like, I don't know. It said, like, in the book, they're, like. and they're, that stopped people, right? Yeah, no, that's true. You get a back alley and a coat hanger. <laughs> there are multiple but, ways. But, yeah, that's why they, like, didn't consider it because at the time it was illegal. Maybe they didn't have the means to get one. And, like, mm-hmm. it said that, like, the family was against adoption, too. Like, the his parents' parents, his, like, grandparents were like, you, pretty much you made your bed, you're going to lie in it now. And that's kind of the situation that they ran into. Um, and they also had another fucking kid, too. Because Roy had a, had a sister, and they're going to say... A younger sister? I'm yeah, sure. younger sister. And even, like, the sister, they were telling her, like, oh, we didn't fucking want you. Then why Did are y'all know? fucking... Without <laughs> Literally, are you stupid? <laughs> like, we didn't want children, but we're going to be banging and not taking any precautions and not have fucking children. Stupid asses. Stupid. So, yeah, they made it clear to him, like, throughout his childhood that he was not wanted. Great. And they resented him for forcing them to get married. Great. Um, his father was a worker in a, like, a junkyard, like, a scrapyard, and his mom, you know, basically just stayed home as a housewife and did fucking drugs all day. <laughs> so, yeah, he was not living in a great situation. Um, he was actually, there was a lot of times where his parents just pretty much, like, gave him up, and so he was put in foster homes. So he was bouncing back and forth, like, between his parents and foster parents and, like, relatives, basically just being bopped around all over the place. Um, he was, so he was getting neglected, not only by his parents, but also by his foster parents. Yeah. He was just getting neglected left and right. Like there was nobody there that was just like, let me do you a solid. He He literally had no chance. Like this is another like very good example of like, he literally never stood a fucking chance. Mm -hmm. Like I can definitely be sympathetic for like Lawrence and Roy when they were kids. Cause like Mm -hmm. they were put into a shitty situation. It's like Mm -hmm. that question of like nature versus nurture. Like if they hadn't had these childhoods, like would they be, would they go on to do the things they did? I, with things like that, I feel like that aids in it, but inevitably it's not the deciding factor. Yeah, that's true. So I think that this would have always been a part of them, but would the need or want to want to do them be as strong? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like, had they had, like, a proper support Mm -hmm. system and, like, loving proper parents, Mm -hmm. like, would that be enough for them to resist the urge mm-hmm. to do what they wanted to do. Right. Wow, that's a really good... Oh, my God, that's, that's thought-provoking. That's making me think. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he was neglected both by his parents and by many of the foster families he was sent to live with. You know, he later claimed that, like, he was basically just often just flat-out, like, denied sufficient food and clothing. Um, he also claimed to have been sexually abused when he was in the care of a Hispanic family. And he later stated that, like, this was the reason that he held so much, like... Um, prejudice and hate towards Hispanic people was because of the abuse he suffered at the hands of this family. 
I'm when Norris was 16 years old. This is kind of where he starts getting into like his his weird shit and doing weird stuff. So when he's 16, he visited the home of like one of his female relatives. They didn't say like how she was related to him, just a female relative. Um, she was in her early 20s. And when he entered her house, like he immediately began speaking to her in like a very like sexually vulgar manner. And she was like, I think the fuck not. Mm-hmm. Um, so she immediately told him to get the fuck out. And mm-hmm. then she like called his father, told his father what Norris had done. And his father was like, when you get home, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> so to avoid Great. getting his shit rocked, um, Norris went and he stole his father's car and he drove it off to the Rocky Mountains. And once he was there, he tried to kill himself by injecting air into an artery in his arm. <sighs> Which you can, like, it call, that causes, like, a, um, um, an, air an air embolism, yes. But he failed at that, unfortunately. Um, can't do anything right. I can't do anything right. <laughs> so he was, he, his attempt was unsuccessful. He was later found by the police. They just saw, he, they labeled him a runaway, basically. And they're like, just go the fuck home. Like, go back to your mm-hmm. parents. Um, a year after this, Norris also ended up dropping out of school. And he went and he joined the Navy. Mm-hmm. So while he was in the Navy, he was stationed in San Diego. This was in 1965. And then he was deployed to serve in the Vietnam War in 1969, though he did not actually see any active combat. And he was only there for like a four month long tour. Mm-hmm. Um, however, like Vietnam was gnarly. Right. And there was other soldiers that he was stationed with that had seen active combat. And like there was also a lot of like drug use in mm-hmm. Vietnam, and so this is where he started smoking weed, and he also got himself, like, addicted to heroin when he was in Vietnam. <laughs> Great. Yeah, he got that Vietnamese heroin, that shit, crazy. Um, so he was also, like, basically what the soldiers would do, the ones who'd seen active combat, like, they would come, and they would basically just, like, tell all the other soldiers, like, about the shit they had seen, and, like, one of the things that they talked about a lot was, like, really gruesome stories of, like, the very brutal, like, rape, torture, and murder of, like, local Vietnamese women. Mm -hmm. So he's got himself on drugs. He's being exposed to these like really horrific stories that these soldiers are basically telling like they're fucking proud of because a lot of them were doing this shit Mm -hmm. and coming back and saying, oh, you'll never guess like what I fucking did. Um, So yeah, he was not getting a lot of good influences from anywhere. Um, He ended up being honorably just honorably discharged. Wow, that's a fucking mouthful. <laughs> um, from the Navy after just one tour of duty. And after he leaves the Navy, like his drug addiction, this kind of like sends him a little further into a spiral. He's not in a good mental state at this point. And he basically just loses his ability to hold himself back from these urges that he's had for his whole life, but has since, you know, except talking real freaky deaky to a relative <laughs> of his. He's, he's pretty much been able to resist the urge to do these things. Mm-hmm. But with the drugs in his system, he loses the ability to hold himself back. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to skirt back over to Lawrence Bittaker now, talk about him. Um, so just a few days after he was released, when he was 18 from the California Youth Authority, he was actually arrested again <laughs> for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. Oh, so God. he just could not fucking stay out of trouble. He was literally, he's like, oh, I'm out. The next thing I'm going to, I'm going to go do crime again. <laughs> God. Like he was literally. He, and he's a bad criminal because he keeps getting caught. Yes, he literally keeps getting fucking caught. So what made you think murdering people, you weren't going to get caught? Dude, actually, they... It wasn't Bittaker who blew up their spot. He was Norris. Oh, shit. So, 
they were actually able to keep their murders on the low low, which I'll kind of get into how they were able to do that. Um, so for this crime, he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. This was August of 1959, and he was to serve this sentence at the Oklahoma State Reformatory. In 1960, though, he was released from prison and straight back to crime. <laughs> Literally straight back to crime. Straight back to um, So within months of his release from the Oklahoma State Reformatory, he had been arrested again in Los Angeles for robbery, and he was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment in May of 1961. So while he was incarcerated for this, he was actually um, given a lot of like psychiatric evaluations, and one of his psychiatrists characterized him as being highly manipulative, um, he was also described as having, quote, considerable concealed hostility. So he had a lot of, like, anger and rage, like, built up of, inside of him. A lot of hidden rage. A lot of hidden rage. <laughs> Not hidden belly, hidden rage. <laughs> Not ranch. Not ranch. Rage. Rage. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also found that despite his very high level of intelligence, he was also extremely paranoid and borderline psychotic. Yeah. So he's got a lot smart of shit people, going on in his Honestly, brain. people who are generally very, very smart tend to have a lot of issues, like mental issues. Yeah. There's like, like, even when we were talking about like David Parker Ray, like he was very intelligent. He could like build things with his hands. He was mm-hmm. very, very like mechanically inclined. Like, mm-hmm. and like Ted Bundy was also very, very intelligent. John mm-hmm. Wayne Gacy, super intelligent. So it's like, it's just a lot of really smart people. They, they're just so smart and things in society and the general person is not up to their standards. Yes. So it gets boring. They literally think they're just better than everybody and they think they're smarter than the police. They think they're smarter than everyone else around and them and they're gets, never going to get caught. And it gets boring. So they need to do and something with their, with their brain to keep them busy. So you go to murder? <laughs> a lot of them are fucked up. So, I mean, if I was bored, I don't think my first thought would be, like, I'm going to do murder. But, like, even just in a general sense, like, a lot of really smart people have mental health issues. Yeah. That's wild, Maybe not murdery ones, but they have a lot. Like, here's a high IQ, but also here's a really fucked up mental illness. Yes. (laughs) Like, you're super smart, but your brain is also kind of fucked. Yes. (laughs) You might be slightly crazy. You might be slightly insane. Good luck. Um, so he was released on parole in 1963 after completing two years of that 15-year sentence. In October of 1964, he was again in prison for a parole violation. Um, he was paroled again in 1967, but then arrested again. I don't understand why they wouldn't, because isn't this like a... X amount of strikes, like, I don't right, know here. if there was, like, I don't think, like, three strikes or anything was a thing. I don't think that came into play to, like, the Reagan administration mm-hmm. and, like, fuck, when was Reagan president? I don't know. Fuck that guy. Um, But they, yeah, they keep letting him out and paroling him, and he just keeps doing more crime and going back to fucking prison. You think at a certain point, they'd be like, maybe we should leave him in here. Yes. Maybe we should just keep him for a little longer. Maybe. That was like, you know, who that was, was, um, 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 Charles Manson Mm. got arrested multiple times, and there was a certain point where he told, like, like they were going to parole him, and he told the parole board, he's like, don't let me out. Mm-hmm. don't let me out and then so fucking let him out <laughs> like this if man prisoner, is telling you to not let him out and you're still the, gonna let him out if the prisoner themselves is like don't let me out because i, I will do danger. Yes. x y and z and you let them out that's on you yes like oh my god i like dude seriously he, he was literally telling them he's like i cannot function in a normal society let me stay in prison please and they're just like no bye and then he started a fucking call and murdered a whole bunch of people 
So great call, great call, great call on that one. <laughs> but the judge feels like shit there. I know, right? That's on you, buddy. That blood mm-hmm. is on your hands. Mm-hmm. Um. So what did I say? Yeah, he was um, a month after he was paroled. He got arrested again in July of 1967. He was convicted of theft and leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years for this, but was again released in April of 1970. Um, in March of 1971, so he goes almost a whole year, almost a whole year this time, um, before he's arrested again for burglary. So due to this burglary and repeated parole violations, he was sentenced to serve between six months and 15 years, which is a real fucking wide, that's a really wide. That's a huge span. Yeah, you're going to get six months or 15 years. Well, like, if you don't make it, if you, if it comes to six months and you don't get out, well, maybe well, next month, month or right. maybe 15 years. That's like so really, I feel like that's cruel and unusual to say six months or 15 years. Uh-huh. Oh, man. But uh, he was given this sentence on October of 1971. Three years after this, in 1974, he was released from prison. Um, However, again, was very soon arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder after he stabbed a young supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. So this employee. that's what he does. Yeah. Steal. Literally, he's a fuck. (laughs) We Ben knew he steals shit. Like, that's his whole MO. He Mm -hmm. just steals stuff. Um, so this employee was named Gary Louie, and he thankfully survived the stabbing. Um, and Bittaker ended up being convicted of the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon. And he was sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo to serve his sentence. So despite forewarnings, again, of psychiatrists who had evaluated Lawrence Bittaker, he was again released from prison in November of 1978. So... Now we're going to talk a little bit about Norris and his history of crime, because both of these men have a very long history of crimes that should have put them in prison for much longer than they were in prison. Um, So in November of 1969, this is when Roy Norris is arrested for his first known sexual offense. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. Um, Three months later, in February 1970, Norris attempted to basically trick a woman who was by like home by herself. He tried to trick her into letting him enter her home. Um, when she refused as any rational fucking person would, he attempted to break into her house. She called the police and then they came, they arrested Norris before he had any opportunity to like break in and actually do any harm to her. So in May of 1970, Norris again, who's on bail for trying to break into a woman's house and rape her. Um, he attacked a female student and he'd been stalking her on the college campus of the San Diego State University. He basically, like, snuck up behind her and beat her repeatedly over the head with a rock until she <laughs> fell to the ground, on which he got on top of her, like, had his knees in her lower back, and continued to beat her head against the sidewalk. And she didn't die. She survived somehow, yes. Um, she did thankfully survive this, and Norris was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, and he was committed to five years imprisonment at the Atascadero State Hospital, where he was classed as a mentally disordered sex offender. So Norris was released from the Atascadero State Hospital in 1975. Um, he was given five years probation, um, having been declared by doctors as an individual who was, quote, no further danger to others. Which they were real fucking wrong on that one. They could not have been more wrong <laughs> on that one. He is the prime <laughs> example of a fucking danger to others. God, God. And he gets out this? of prison and he goes right back to doing the same shit he was doing before he got it. Huh, so 
Just three months after he was released, Norris approached a 27-year-old woman while she was walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach, and he was on his motorcycle, and he offered her a ride home. Um, She politely declines, which pisses him the fuck off. So he parks his motorcycle, and he grabs the scarf that this woman is wearing. He twists it around her neck to, like, keep hold of her and fucking try to choke her out before just straight up telling her, like, I am going to rape you. And then he dragged her into some nearby bushes where he did then proceed to make good on his threat and rape her. Um, The woman, after the attack, she did report it to police. Mm -hmm. Um, It took them like a month to figure out that it was Norris Mm because like she didn't know him. Like she had a hard time kind of like identifying him, whatever. But she she actually spotted him like around Redondo Beach and called the police. She's like this month. It's it's him. Mm -hmm. Um, So he was arrested and a year later he was tried and convicted and he was sent to the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo where at this time, Lawrence Bittaker is there too. So this is where they meet at the prison in prison. They met in prison. Great. So a match made in fucking heaven. I know. right? Like all the stars is aligned in the worst fucking way Mm -hmm. to put these two together. Yes. So, like, like, what are the fucking chances? Because, like, they didn't know each other at all before Mm -hmm. any of this. Like, they're both kind of had, like, the same stomping grounds, like, around Redondo Beach, but they had never, like... Crossed paths. Yeah, they never crossed paths before, but it just so happened that they both were sentenced to serve their incarceration at the same place. Um, For being pieces of shit. Literally, for being pieces of shit. It's like, we always talk about, like, how, like, people... Like, how do you meet somebody and just start being like, yo, have you ever thought about murdering people? And then the person's like, oh my god, yeah, have you ever thought about murdering people? And like, then, you seem real murdery. You seem, like, you seem Are my like vibes a fucking off? psycho. It was like David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy, like, when they were just at the bar and talking about how they wanted to, like, rape and torture women together. Like, uh, like that's just casual bar conversation for you? What the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? No, literally. So, Bittaker and Norris, they initially became, like, loosely acquainted in 1977, which was about a year after Norris had arrived at San Luis Obispo. So, they actually started to become, like, closer friends when Norris actually taught Bittaker how to make jewelry. Why they were making jewelry in prison, I don't fucking know. But to each their own, I suppose. Um, and according to Norris, Bittaker actually saved him from being attacked by fellow inmates a couple times. Because, like, Norris is in there for rape. Mm-hmm. And, like, rapists don't do too hot in prison. No. So he, you know, owed some to Bittaker. He's like, yo, dude, like, thanks for saving my ass a few times. So by 1978, the pair had become, like, very, very close friends. And this is kind of when they started discovering that they both had a shared interest in sexual violence and just, like, a general, like, misogynistic hate towards women. Mm-hmm. So Norris also explained to Bittaker that, like, for him, the reason he raped women was because, like, it got him off. Like, it stimulated him seeing the fear in their faces. And that's why he chose rape because he could, you know. See their face. See their face and see the, he said he liked to see the fear in their eyes, basically. What the fuck? So... Um, and he said, like, that was mainly the reason why he had, like, such a long rap sheet for sexual offenses was, like, mm-hmm. that was his fucking bread and butter. He's like, I love seeing the fear on a face of, like, a beautiful woman. Oh, um, God. Yeah, he was fucking weird. Disgusting. Disgusting. He was disgusting. Um, so, like, every time they were alone, basically, like, they were talking about this stuff. And this is how they slowly started to come up with a plan 
that when they were released, they were going to get together and they were going to kidnap, rape, and murder girls together. Oh my god. Teenage girls. Specifically, they wanted to murder one teenage girl for every year, like age 13 and 19. They wanted to murder a girl for every teenage year. What the fuck? Yeah. They're, these dudes were fucked. <laughs> they were so like... They were on, like, another level of, like, fucked up. What the fuck? They're, like, absolutely fucking disgusting. Um, so, yeah, this is, like, the shit they talked about, like, day after day. And they were just, like, adding on to their plans. They are talking about how they would do it, like, what they needed to get together, where their, like, fucking hunting grounds were going to be. Um, both, basically, like, the standard was, like, we both want to attack and rape. Um, and then they both were, like, well, should we let them live, like, what should we do? And then they came to the decision, like, no, like, we have to, if we want to do this as much as we plan to do it, we have to make sure we kill them. So, obviously, they're not going to go back and tell the police, because that's how we got in fucking prison in the first place. So, <sighs> they were forming this plan. Like, Bitteker, he was, according to Norris, at least, he was, like, the one who was, like, hella excited to try out all these different, like, forms of torture that they were talking about. And, like, he was the one who was like, we have to murder these girls. Like, according to Norris, it was Bitteker who pitched the idea to murder them. Norris was like, I just want to rape people. Like, as long oh as I God. can rape them, like, I'm, I'm chill. I'm cool. Oh That's all he wanted. Ugh. So they had this plan set, and then they vowed to meet up again once they were both released from prison. So um, Bitteker gets out in 1978. And Norris is released from prison on, on January 15th, 1979. So he gets out and he moves into his mother's home in Redondo Beach. Uh, within a month of his release, he had, again, raped another woman. And he just basically abandoned her in a desert. He was working as an electrician in Compton. And shortly thereafter, he receives a letter from Lawrence Bittaker. Um, So in late February, uh, what is this, 1979, they meet at a hotel, and this is where they really start to rekindle their plan to kidnap, rape, and murder teenage girls. <laughs> so, again, once they met back up outside, this is when they really, like, start fleshing it. They're like, okay, like, we have this basic plan, but, like, what realistically do we need to, to do this? Right. So, they, like, broke it down piece by piece into very specific details, and a lot of this is, like, attributed the way they broke this down and came up with this plan. A lot of it is attributed to how smart Lawrence Bittaker was. So, like, he he planned it out to the T. He's like, they knew how they were going to get their victim, how they were going to move them, where they were going to kill them, and how they were going to dispose of the body. Like, this is all things that they worked out prior to ever trying, you know, and abducting their very first victim. So... Bittaker also came up with the idea to use a van to kidnap the girls rather than a car. You know, he was thinking, like, more space. You know, we can just drive up, snatch them. Mm. Um, and they ended up, like, combining whatever financial resources they had. And they were able to purchase a 1977 GMC cargo van in February of 1979. So this van was silver in color. And it had no windows on the side, which was pretty much ideal Mm -hmm. For the purposes that they intended it to serve. Mm -hmm. Obviously, no one can see in and no one can see out. So it was important to, obviously, like, they don't want anybody to see in, to see the girls in the van. But they also don't want the girls to see out because they don't want them to be able to know where they're being taken, pretty mm -hmm. much. 
So uh, the van also had like on, um, it wasn't like a normal, like, you know, door where you like pull it. It was a big sliding door that basically opened the entire side of the van. Mm-hmm. So like, this is perfect. Like we can just open the door, snatch the girl, slam the door shut. And it's going to be a whole lot easier to pull a girl in a big sliding door, a big opening like that versus trying to get her in like a normal car door. So like this shit's perfect. We got our murder mobile. Oh God. Um, <laughs> oh God. They um, also, like, fitted the back of the van. They made a makeshift bed. They had coolers for, like, cold drinks because that was going to be, like, one of the way they were going to try to lure girls into the van was, like, um, if they saw someone hitchhiking, like, oh, have you been walking for a while? Like, are you thirsty? Like, do you want to ride? We have drinks. Mm -hmm. So this was all part of their plan to lure the girls into the van. And they also had in this van a toolbox full of a variety of different items that they were going to use to subdue, maim, torture, and kill their victims. So this included a large sledgehammer and Bittaker's personal favorite tool, a pair of vice grip pliers. No. So after they got their little van, (laughs) after they, yeah, no, dude, you're not ready for the shit you do with these fucking pliers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. I laugh because it's painful. I laugh because I'm traumatized. This one's going to be nipple soup. Dude, it, you're not wrong. They don't eat it, though. <laughs> Thankfully, there's no can. I should have given trigger warnings for this. Ah, I'm sorry, shit. guys. Um, it's a little late now, but, like, trigger warning for, like, kidnapping, rape, torture, mm. murder. Mm, yeah, all of the above. All of the above, et cetera, et cetera. So, Bittaker and Norris, they decided to nickname their new torture mobile the Murder Mac. That's what they called it. The Murder Mac. They called it the fucking Murder Mac. I just, he's just being so lovely. Oh, Bubby sidebar, because Bubby being such a good boy. He put his paw on me. He was like, love me, please. Aw, he's so, like, he has two, he has two personalities. He's either like this, very cuddly and very lovey, or he's fucking stinky. And cops an attitude and screams mm. and just <laughs> is mm. the stinkiest man in the world. Oh, right now you're being great. But he's being very sweet right now. And I he think, is. you know, he just wants attention sometimes. He just likes to snuggle. That's what he's doing. He's just a snuggly guy. Oh, snuggle, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back from our bubby sidebar. So over the next few months after they had prepared their murder Mac, um, Bittaker and Norris spent a lot of time just driving up and down the Pacific Coast Highway, getting a feel for, like, how they were really going to start kidnapping these teenage girls. Something they did often was actually, like, park at the local beaches and, like, go out and, like, flirt with the, like, girls that they saw there. Um, They would, like, photograph them, some with their consent, some without their consent. Um, They had even actually picked up some girls and, like, brought them into the van, but, like, nothing ever happened to these girls. I think that they did this with at least 20 different teenage girls. Just to, like, see how people would yeah. react. Yes. The whole purpose of, like, they are calling, like, their dry runs, basically, like, was to help them perfect their plan. They were testing out, basically, their methods of, like, gaining these girls' trust mm-hmm. and figuring out, like, the best ways to get them to get into the van willingly. Because they wanted these girls to just get in the van because mm-hmm. that was going to be easiest for them. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. if they're unwilling, they're going to just pull them in the fucking van. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole lot easier if, they get, if in. they get in by themselves. So the next part of their plan, like, they have the murder Mac. They're kind of scoping out how to pick up these teenage girls. So the next thing they need to figure out before they're ready to put this plan into action is where they're going to take them 
after they get them in the van. So they were looking for like the perfect, they wanted like a location that was going to be isolated, not often traveled where they could just park their van and do whatever the fuck they were going to do to their victims and not worry about being disturbed. So it was around. They put a lot of thought into this. They did. They put a fucking ridiculous amount of thought into this. It's like all of that intelligence you have, like you're using it for this. I know. Instead of like doing something beneficial to the world, you're going to use that high IQ you got to figure out the best method to kidnap, rape, torture, and murder teenage girls. Yep. Like what the fuck, dude? What the fuck? What the the fuck? (laughs) Literally what the fuck? Um, so a place that they found that they thought was the perfect, perfect location was a fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. And this is a like remote mountain range, um, outside of Glendora, California. So when they first find the gate, it's locked with like just a regular padlock. Um, but Bitteker was like, fuck, that's easy. And he like breaks it off with a crowbar and then he ends up replacing the lock with one of his own. Mm -hmm. So they now have their perfect location they've got their van they've got their location like it would also be a good place they thought to dispose of so they kind of hit like a two-in-one they found their location and their place to dispose of the bodies because there was a lot of like canyons and like it's a mountain range basically Mm -hmm. and they thought like if the elements wouldn't take care of it then the animals would get the body so this is the perfect spot it's a Mm two-in-one so they have everything they need they got the murder mac they found their perfect location now the last piece they need is a victim. So Great. we're going to go back to the case that I opened this with, um, Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. Mm. So like I mentioned, she was um, 16 years old and she was like gorgeous. She was so pretty. She had like... You said 16? Yeah, 16. Mm. She was like the perfectly little California girl. She had like the pretty long blonde hair, like mm. blue eyes. Like she was... I'll have to show you pictures of like all these girls after it. She like... She was beautiful mm-hmm. and she again was on her way home from church at like quarter to eight in the in the evening and this again is when she's spotted by norris and bitteker so they had spent the day like the day leading up to this at the beach they're like drinking beer they're smoking weed they're like chatting up the other teenage girls um and norris is the one to spot lucinda while she's walking home and he like nudges bitteker basically he's like he says quote there's a cute little blonde and so they spot her and they make that decision right then and there that she is going to be their one they are going to take. So they pull up alongside Lucinda and they try to get her into the van, you know, with offers of like a ride home, like we can smoke some weed together. It's whatever. And she was like, again, she didn't smoke. She didn't drink. She was very like, like straight edge. Basically, mm-hmm. she just, you know, she was a good girl. She went to school. She went to church. She didn't do anything like that. So obviously she's like, no, thanks. Like, I'll just keep on walking. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is when Norris and Bitteker, they drive a little bit ahead of her. They park beside a driveway. Norris is the one who gets out of the van, and he opens the side door. Um, He kind of, like, leans in, so, like, the top, like, he's kind of hidden. So, like, she d- can't see necessarily where he is when she walks by. So, as she gets close to the van, he kind of leans out, and he, like, starts to speak to her again. Mm-hmm. Um, And this is when he grabs her, and he drags her into the van. So once the door was closed, Bitteker turns up the radio again to drown out any sound of Lucinda screaming. And Norris binds up her legs and her arms and then gags her with duct tape. So after they have her in the van, they make their way up to this fire road, their location in the mountains. 
Um, when they reached the fire road, kind of parked the van, were settled, Norris told Bittaker to, like, get out and go take a walk. Mm. And Bittaker was gone for about an hour. And throughout this entire hour, um, Norris was, like, brutally raping Aww. Lucinda the entire time. Um, after about an hour, Bittaker comes back, and then he tells Norris to get the fuck out. And then Bittaker takes his turn raping Lucinda. Um, then Norris comes back. Bittaker leaves. Norris goes at her again. Um, and this time, while Norris is raping her again, Lucinda, this is when she asks him, like, are you going to kill me? Mm-hmm. Um, Norris told her no, but Lucinda was like, she can, you know, you yeah. can gauge a situation like right. that. Like, you know, like, you've seen their faces. They've, you've been, she's been there for over three hours at this point. Mm-hmm. So she's probably, she's smart enough to know that she's probably not, not getting out of this. Yeah. So, like, this is literally, like, so sad. The only thing she, she's like, she doesn't beg for her life. She doesn't do any of that. She just asks them if they're going to kill her to please let her pray before they kill her. Aww. And I'm like, that is so, that's like the saddest thing I've ever <laughs> fucking heard in my life. Oh, like, not, no. please don't kill me. Please let me go. It's please let me pray if you're going to kill me. Like, that is so fucking sad. Oh, That no, literally my like, breaks my fucking heart, dude. Mm. Like, these people, these dudes were fucking disgusting. Like, they're psychos. Literally. And like, the fact that she was so resigned to what was going to happen to her that like, she just had, like, no fight in her. It's, like, her in a place where she doesn't know where she is. Mm-hmm. Two men that are much bigger than her have already brutalized her for three hours. Mm-hmm. And she she just resigns herself to it. And it's, mm-hmm. like, I can't ever, like, I don't, I'm glad I can't imagine being in a situation Literally. like that. But, like, just to think what she felt in that situation. And she was just, like, I'm going to die. Like, I at least just want to pray to God before I die. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's fucking heavy, dude. Mm-hmm. That's so heavy. Um, so according to Bittaker and Norris, like in, in testimony they gave later, they were actually arguing about whether they should let Lucinda go or whether they should kill her. Mm. Um, both of them gave contradictions uh, for like who was on what side, like Bittaker obviously said Norris wanted to kill her and Norris always said Bittaker wanted to kill her. Um, but regardless, whatever that fucking argument was, they, they killed her. Mm. Um, so what we know for sure Based on Norris's testimonies and Bittaker's testimonies, Norris first initially tried to, like, strangle Lucinda with his bare hands. Mm. But, like, he said, and this is, like, he's such a little fucking bitch because his whole thing was, like, oh, I love to see the fear in a woman's eyes. And he couldn't finish strangling her because she was looking at him the entire time. He had to back away. He said, I can't take a look in her eyes. Like, you fucking stupid little bitch. You're going to have your whole fucking MO be like, oh, I love to see the fear in their eyes. But the second a woman stares at you and makes you look at her, comprehend what you're doing, Mm -hmm. you bitch out. Yep. Like, what the fuck, Mm -hmm. dude? You're a piece of shit. You're trash. Disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) So he actually, like, literally had to, like, run off and, like, go fucking vomit in the bushes. Like, that's Mm -hmm. how much of a bitch he was. So... After Norris couldn't fucking take it, Bittaker takes over and he, um, like, he manually strangles her until she, like, collapses and she starts to convulse on the ground. And this is when he takes a wire hanger that he has, like, a kind of, like, undone wire hanger and he twists it around his neck, her neck, and he takes his vice grip pliers and he just twists it tighter and tighter and tighter until she stopped moving. Oh, my God. So... 
he basically just fucking garroted her yeah. with a wire hanger. Uh. Um, and the fucking worst fucking cherry on this shit fucking cake is the one thing she asked them for. They didn't let her. They do. didn't let her pray. Like fucking you. Stupid fucks. You're going to kill her anyway. I know. Like, just can't you give her that one fucking piece? Literally. Before you m- brutally murder her? Literally. Like, yo, I know these dudes are pieces of shit, but, like, just hearing it in this frame, it's like, Ugh. that's fucking brutal. brutal. You couldn't do her. This girl that you just raped repeatedly. There's one solid. That you could, right. You couldn't do her this one fucking favor before you murdered her. She just wanted to pray. That's it. Literally one thing. She didn't even ask to see the outside. She didn't ask you to leave her anywhere. Yeah. She, she just, she's she just like, wanted to pray. I just want to pray. She could do that I right just there. Pray in before front I die. Of y'all. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't, she doesn't have to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, she wasn't fighting them, like nothing. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't give her the one, one thing that she asked of them before mm-hmm. they killed her. Mm-hmm. So, pieces of shit. Yeah. That's a fucking understatement. Mm-hmm. Um, so after she was dead, they wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain and then they threw her down a canyon. Um, Norris later told police that Bideker had assured him that there would be no evidence because the wild animals would eat Lucinda's remains and that there would be nothing left. Mm-hmm. So after Lucinda, the next victim of Bideker and Norris was Andrea Joy Hall, who was 18 years old. So she was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway on July 8th, 1979, and this was just two weeks after they had murdered Lucinda. Um, so again, she's hitchhiking, and Bideker and Norris, as they do, they basically just go up and down Pacific Coast Highway and right. scope out possible victims. So they, again, spot her again. She's another beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, like, they have a type. Mm-hmm. They very clearly have a type. So they see her. Um, she actually gets a ride from another car before they were able to stop and pick her up. And they were, like, so adamant that they wanted her that they followed this car the entire time she was in it. Wow. Um, And then they followed her all the way to, like, Redondo Beach, which was quite a ways away from where she had initially been picked up. Um, So when Andrea gets out of that initial car, they, like, all right, this is our chance. So they kind of changed their MO a little bit. It usually was um, Bideker and Norris in the front seat. So Bideker is like, no, get in the back. Like, I'll probably have a better chance of convincing her to get in. Like, if she sees it's just me. So Norris goes into the back of the van and Bideker pulls up beside her. You know, first thing he does, he's like, oh, like, have you been walking for a while? Like, do you want a drink? And she's like, you know what? Sure. Like, I'll I'll take a drink. Like, that's great. So he pulls over and he's like, oh, yeah, I've got a cooler in the back. Like, you know, just go and let me grab it for you. So he gets the cooler out of the back of the van. And as she's kind of like leaning in, reaching for it, Mm. this is when Norris like leaps out at her and yanks her inside the van. Great. And she fought like hell, too. Mm. But like she was not like it's two grown ass men versus an 18 year old girl. They're going to get her into the van. Right. So... Like Lucinda, Andrea had her ankles and her wrists bound, and her mouth was duct taped to gag her. They once again drove out to that isolated spot, that fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Mm. Um, Bideker raped Andrea first, and then Norris. Um, and then Bideker came back to rape her again a second time. And during this, Norris was like kind of keeping watch, and he thought that he saw like the headlights of a vehicle approaching. So Bideker like puts his hand over Andrea's mouth. And he drags her, like, out in some bushes. 
Um, and then Norris gets in the van to drive away and he like starts searching for this vehicle that he thought he saw. So like Norris wasn't able to find anything. Like who knows if there was actually a car, if he was just paranoid seeing shit, but he shortly returns back to where Bittaker and Andrew are hiding. And then they decide that they're not far enough into the mountains. So like, we got to move. We got to go a little bit further in. So they didn't take the van. They just walked her there. So she's completely naked at this point. Um, so Bittaker forces Andrea to walk naked up the roadside. Um, and then once they were content with how far back they were, um, he forces her to her knees, basically, and then makes her perform oral sex on him. Ew. Um, she was then forced to perform um, oral sex on Norris, and then they make her pose for Polaroid pictures. Like, that was one of their things. Like, they took a lot of Polaroids. Like, when they were taking these pictures of, like, the girls, just ran, it was on a Polaroid camera. Because they wanted, like, the instantaneous, mm-hmm. you know, little gratification of having mm-hmm. that picture. So they get back into the van, and then they drive into another location in the mountains. Um, and so, again, they get to this new spot. And they're they're kind of driving at this point, and they're forcing Andrea to walk next to the van. And she's still completely naked. Mm-hmm. She's all cut up. She's been beaten. She's been raped multiple times. And just mm-hmm. to add insult to her fucking injury, they're like, we're not even going to let you be in the van. You're going to walk. What the You're fuck? gonna walk the entire time. Um, so at this point, like Norris, like once they get to the new location, he's like, you know what? Like I want to go buy some alcohol. I want to go buy some booze. So he leaves Bittaker and Andrea at this new location, and then he leaves with the intent to go to a liquor store and like buy some alcohol. By the time he came back, he said that Bittaker was there, but there was no sign of Andrea. Um, Bittaker had two more Polaroids of her. Um, and like, this was probably, he probably captured like the last couple moments of her life on these Polaroids Mm -hmm. because the absolute fucking terror on her face was like so clearly evident in these photos. Um, Bittaker told Norris that he had instructed Andrea to pretty much, he was fucking taunting her. He said, I want you to tell me as many reasons that you can think of on why I should let you live. Um... As she was doing this, and this is fucking brutal, like, just to forewarn you, um, he takes out an ice pick, and he uh. stabs it through one of her ears. Oh, my God. Then he takes it out, he drives it into her other ear, and then he proceeds to stomp on the ice pick until so hard until the handle of it breaks off. Uh. Um, somehow, Andrea was still alive after this so what he did he just manually strangled her till she was dead and then threw her body over a cliff Mm -mm. like the Mm -mm. fuck the sheer brutality like bro what the fuck what the fuck literally what the fuck that's the only like i can't i can't i got no words man it's literally what the fuck what the fuck (sighs) what the fuck and it doesn't get any better. Like, there's uh, no fucking... It, honestly, it gets progressively worse. Great. So, the next victim, or victims, I should say, were two, two teenage girls. It was 15-year-old Jackie Doris Gilliam and 13-year-old Jacqueline Leah Lamp. Um, I'm going to call... I'm going to refer to Jackie as Jackie and Jacqueline Lamp as Leah. Because, like, 
Jackie and Jacqueline can get a little flustered. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to call, like, Jacqueline Lamp by her middle name, which was Leah. Mm-hmm. So they were just sitting at a bus stop. They were at Hermosa Beach, California, and this was September 13th, 1979. So they kind of stopped to rest because they, again, they had been hitchhiking along the highway, and they were sitting at the bus stop when Bittaker and Nora spotted them. They pulled over, they offered them a ride, and the girls, unfortunately, accepted their offer. Mm. So once Jackie and Leah were inside the van, they were offered marijuana, and both of them, again, accepted that offer. So Jackie and Leah, like, very quickly realized that the van was not heading in the direction that they thought it was going to be heading in. And so they were, like, immediately, like, hey, like, where are you going? Like, this, you're not, you're no longer on the highway anymore. Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Um, so Norris and Bittiger try to give them some bullshit excuse about why they're no longer on the highway. But the girls, they're, like, calling bullshit. They're, like, no, like, we, just let us get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. So they, Leah actually attempted to open the van's door. And when she did so, um, she was hit on the back of the head with, like, a bag full of, like, lead weights, basically. Um, this knocked her unconscious long enough for Norris to go in and bind up Jackie. So Norris was actually in the process of binding and gagging Jackie when Leah woke up again. And again, she tries, she's been fucking knocked in the head with a bag of weights and she still tries to get out of this (laughs) van is still moving, mind you. Um, so she tries again to get out of the van um, she, like, fucking Bittaker is like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. So she, like, manages to get the door open, and she manages to, like, some, like, kind of get out, but then Norris, like, grabs her arm, yanks her back inside. Damn, imagine so, being that close. Yeah, she was literally, like, and it was, like, Bittaker had slowed down the van at this point. Like, she could jump out and, mm-hmm. like, be fine and just fucking run for it. Right. Like, it was gonna suck to have to leave her friend, but, like, mm-hmm. at least you gotta if she do got what away, you gotta do. right, if she could get away, she could alert the police and maybe, like, get help and maybe like they would get scared and like mm. just dump dump her jump yeah dump jackie mm. somewhere um but unfortunately she got close but she didn't make it so um basically like so bitaker like pulls the van over and like she's fighting and they're they're not nearly as like isolated as they were the other victims like they're still potentially victims around they could see all this struggle happening so bitaker's like what the fuck like we gotta get this shit together and so he pulls the van over, and he comes around the side, and he punches her in the face to subdue her. What the fuck? He punches her in the fucking face. Um, so after this, they were able to subdue them enough. They got them both tied up with the duct tape, and they had them both gagged. So like the other victims before them, Jackie and Leah were driven to this isolated fire road in the mountains. Um, but the difference between... The earlier murders and Jackie and Leah is that Bittaker and Norris kept them for two days. Oh my two God. days. And along this two days, like they're like repeated physical and sexual assaults. Like not only were they raping them, but they were beating them. Um poor girls. So they took turns sleeping in the van, like one next to the girls, and like one would keep a lookout and they would do whatever the fuck they were doing with the girls while the other one was on the lookout. On one point during this, Bittaker made Leah get out of the van and again pose for Polaroids as he was wont to do. Um, Bittaker also asked Norris to take several Polaroids of him, like, with Jackie. 
both with them both nude and both of them clothed. So, like, Ew. this is, like, a, like a freaky-deaky, obviously a fucking freaky thing for him. Like, right. he, like, the pictures, he want those are his trophies. Yeah. Like, he wasn't keeping anything, like, personal. I don't think, like, too much of them. Like, it wasn't, you know, like, he wasn't keeping clothes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But he was keeping a fuck ton of these Polaroids. Ugh. So, um... He also had another really fucked up tendency, and a thing that he liked to do was um, record the attacks, like on a on a cassette, like audio recorder. Mm-hmm. So, Bittaker raped Jackie like three times over this course of two days, and in one of those instances, he pulled out a tape recorder and he recorded the entire thing. Um, he forced her to pretend that she was his cousin. Ew. On this recording? Ew. I know. Some like, what incest? the fuck? What I know. Is incest fuck? getting off too, you fucking weirdo? Um, so not only was he forcing her to say that she was his cousin for some fucking reason, um, he also basically told her to just scream as much as she wanted to the entire time. Like, he was definitely, like, a fucking sadist. What like, he fuck? was getting off on the knowledge of the absolute like, agony that he was causing to these girls. So he's like, scream all the fuck you want, man. Like, that is what I'm into. You know, scream louder. Actually, no one's good. And I think it was probably like the power trip, too, of like, scream all you want. No one's going to hear you right. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, he tortured Jackie in a few specific ways. Um, He stabbed her in the breast with the ice pick a few times. Um, And he also used those voice grip pliers to tear off one of her nipples. Ooh. Yeah, I know the shudders of that. <laughs> that Literally, just gave me chills. I know, dude. I this is like probably like uh, no, actually I'll tell you a story later. <laughs> but it just made oh, me God. Think, it just made me think of something that <laughs> like I don't know if I want this much information about me to be out on the camera. Um, but it was like a funny story that made me think of this because like I just got like the flash of like mm. when that happened, like how painful it was, mm. and just the thought of like. Mm. What like that with the fucking vice grip pliers and him literally just fucking tearing her nipple off like, ow, fucking beyond ow. I can't even. I don't have the words for how much like that had to fucking hurt. So, it was after almost two days of captivity when Leah and Jackie were murdered. Um, at Bittaker's subsequent trial, Norris claimed that he actually tried to suggest to Bittaker that Jackie be killed quickly because she like unlike Leah like Jackie had been largely cooperative through the entire thing which this poor girl she's the one who's getting fucking stabbed in the, in the breast with the fucking ice pick and her nipple mm-hmm. torn off mm-hmm. and she's the one who's being compliant <laughs> this poor girl literally what the fuck i wonder what they fucking did like i couldn't find really a lot of information on what they did to leah yeah with her not being the compliant one and the one who's cooperating is getting all of this up. Yeah, dude, I don't even want to know what that poor girl probably went through. They but probably fucked her You know shit that up. it had to just be fucking brutal. Because, like, mm. look what they did to the one who was being cooperative. Right. Um, so Norris is like, why don't we kill Jackie quickly? It's like, oh, fucking reward for her being cooperative. Um, and then he said that Bittaker replied, quote, no, they only die once anyway. So he wanted to make the most of being able to murder these two girls. So Jackie um, was killed in a very similar way to how um, Andrea was. She was struck in each ear with an ice pick and then strangled to death. Bittaker then got Leah out of the van and he shouted, um, you, wanted to, you wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin. So I guess they didn't rape Leah or he was playing some weird fucking psychological game with them. Yeah. Um, so Norris was the one who killed Leah. He struck her over the head with a sledgehammer. And then to finish her off, Bittaker strangled her until 
Well, I guess they both killed her because he, Norris, hit her with the sledgehammer and then Bittaker strangled her until he thought she was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wasn't after this. So she opened her eyes and they saw her open her eyes. Um, and then after this, Norris picked up the sledgehammer again and he just beat her repeatedly over the head while <sighs> Bittaker was on top of her, strangling her again until she finally passed away. Like the other victims, the bodies were collected and they were tossed down a cliff into a ravine. So there was actually one victim of Bittaker and Norris who got away. And this was the like penultimate victim. So after this one is their last victim. And we're actually going to talk about that in part two, because this is where I'm going to end part one. (laughs) Um, So the victim who got away, she was named Robin Robeck. She, um, uh, Bittaker and Norris had attempted to kidnap her on September 30th. She was actually visiting California from Oregon, and she was staying with her father in Manhattan Beach. So she was, again, just walking along the road when Bittaker and Norris pulled up beside her and asked her if she wanted a ride. She told them no, mm-hmm. and she kept on walking. And, of course, they, they don't like being rejected. They're like, uh-uh, that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. So they tried again to convince her. convince her, and when she rejected them again, they fucking maced her. <laughs> What the fuck? They sprayed her with fucking mace. What the hell? And then yanked her into the van. Oh, my God. Like, what the fuck, you guys? Like, They're a bunch of bitches. You are a bunch of bitches. Like, fuck you guys. Like, both of them are dead, and I hope you're rotting in hell. I Literally. really hope you're rotting I in hope hell. you can hear this, because you can suck. I hope you can hear this in hell, and that you're being fucking tortured. Literally. Just like that. Just like that. Because fuck you. I hope you get stabbed in the ear repeatedly with an ice pick yeah, every fucking, fucking day. fucking rips the tip of your dick off of fucking pliers. And both your nipples. And both your nipples. Get fucked. (laughs) So they used the pepper spray to subdue her, and then they pulled her into the van. They drove off, and as they did, they parked, and they took turns raping her in the back of the van. So they had, like, admittedly, like, they just murdered four girls successfully, Mm -hmm. and there hasn't really been any inklings. They they haven't found any bodies. Like, the girls Mm -hmm. have been reported missing, Mm-hmm. But there's no bodies. Nobody's on their trail. So they're getting a little cocky. They're getting a little mm-hmm. confident. Um, Robin, however, was like, fuck you guys. And she's like, they, they kind of dropped their guard, right? Because they're getting in that mood. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. we're fucking practice at this. Now, like, we got it. Like, mm-hmm. we're so smart. We're so fucking good at this. Mm-hmm. They're basically sucking their own fucking dicks about oh, it. Um, so when they drop their guard a little bit, Robin sees an opportunity to get away. So she sees it and she fucking takes it. She, I would too. Like, Rips the door open. She sprints out of the van. She fucking track stars her ass out <laughs> I'm of there. I'm a track star. I'm a track star. No, that was literally her. And mm. it fucking paid off mm. because, like, they were so shocked. And she must have been fucking booking because mm. they weren't able to catch her. She was like, I'm gone. I'm, <laughs> I'm gone. Too. I'm not looking back. I'm out. No, literally, I'm she running. She was running for her fucking life Mm. so immediately she goes to the police and she reports the attack um unfortunately she couldn't like she was fucking traumatized and like Mm. in shock so she wasn't really able to get a good description of Bittaker or of Norris Mm. and like she hadn't taken note of the license plate like she unfortunately doesn't have a lot of information like Mm. thankfully she was able to get away but you know she's not thinking like Mm. let me memorize their faces let me take down their license plate she's thinking let me get the fuck out of here so i could live because like if they catch me i'm fucking dead yes. so the only thing i'm thinking about is getting the fuck out of dodge literally um but unfortunately 
Well, the only thing that she was able to tell them was that the van was silver. Because mm-hmm. it was an obvious big fucking silver van. Right. So, unfortunately, because they didn't have... They had basically no information to act on. The police weren't able to do anything further for her, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, Bittaker and Norris were a little shaken by this. Um, so she was abducted on September 30th. And they've been kind of doing these, um, kidnapping these girls in like very quick succession to each other. Like from Lucinda to Andrea was like two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then a couple more weeks from Andrea to Jackie and Leah. Mm-hmm. But after Robin, they kind of, you know, they pull back a little bit and they're like, you know, we just got, they were basically just wondering if, like, anything was going to come of it, if, like, she was going to be able to identify them, if they were going to have the police knocking on their door. So they lay low a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, But after a couple months, they are, like, they get the fucking itch again, and they go and they seek their final victim, who they abduct on October 31st, 1979. Halloween. A Halloween murder. I'm sticking with the theme in a way here. <laughs> Um, and this victim, who we are going to start off part two with, was 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford. And this was the murder that led to the arrest of Bittaker and of Norris. And this, that, I'm just going to let you know, this one is gnarly. It's bad. So we are going to have quite a final victim to start part two off with. <laughs> Great. But that was part one. Mm-hmm. How do we feel? <laughs> These guys are fucked. Yeah, they're bad. This yeah. is, I, like, there's... Match made in hell. I know, like, oh my god, literally, you should have just kept them in prison. You know. had them in prison. Multiple times. M- multiple times. Over, like, and a decade. And one of them, the psychiatrist, told you not to let him yes. out. Yes, yes. Oh, my God, the fact that when Norris was let out the one time, like, he's not a danger to anybody. The fuck? Clearly. And, like, a couple weeks later, he's, like, he's in fucking jail again because he raped someone. (sighs) You stupid-ass motherfuckers. Like, what? (laughs) The people who decided to let them out literally disgusted me. Dude, y'all fucked up. Y'all fucked up so bad. The fact that they were in prison. They were there. They just fucking kept getting, like, slaps on the wrist, too. Like, the one, like, Bittaker was sentenced to, like, 15 years for robbery. He served two. Literally. Before he got out on parole. The fuck? You have fucking... And how many times did he violate parole? So many times. Like, so many times. What the hell? And you're telling me you just get another maybe six months? Yeah, right. A little slap on the wrist, don't do that again kind of deal. No wonder he kept fucking reoffending because he was never paying any real consequences for it. He's like, oh, I can rob this place. I'm only gonna get... Two years in How jail. bad can bad get until I actually get in trouble? Exactly. Exactly. And then mm-hmm. they go and do shit like this. Mm-hmm. Fucking God, man. Like, the fact that Norris was not in the prison for the rest so of his fucked. life after fucking beating a woman over the head with a rock and smashing her face against the sidewalk. You're... How the fuck do you let somebody like that out? Because the system is fucked. The system is so fucked. Dude, Ugh. it's just the fact that, like, if anybody had given a fuck about actually getting, like, dangerous people off the streets, like, they would, none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. Or if they just would have fucking kept them in prison where exactly. they were in That's the first place. Like, if they cared, if they actually, like, oh my god, dude, it's absolutely insane. Here, I'll show you a picture. It's of, not even like they, like, needed to catch them first. Like, these people were already yes, in prison. they were in, like, they were, in, like, both of them were on police's radar constantly because they were 
career criminals and they're constantly reoffending. And you just think they're not offending now? Right. Like, you think they're just, like, suddenly deciding to not get into fucking trouble anymore? No, they're just doing something extra sneaky. No, they're just doing something extra sneaky and fucking worse. A million times worse. Yep. Dude, like, okay, I have to show you. So this is this is Lawrence Bittaker. Yeah. And then this is Roy Norris. Ew. Um, this is Lucinda. Mm. This is Andrea. Okay. And then this is um this is oh god, this one, this is this is Jackie. Okay. And then this is Leah. Yeah, clearly they have a type. Yeah. Very clearly a type. Mm-hmm. Blonde hair, light eyes, like Mm-hmm. Very, very clearly a type. And these two fucking crusty ass, musty, dusty, ugly motherfuckers uh, with your stupid fucking looking at pedophile mustache, you rat bitch. <laughs> you rat bitches. <laughs> rat fucking bitches. Yeah, so um I don't know when the fuck we're gonna record part two. <laughs> Probably sometime within the next couple days, but you yeah, know. Because this weekend's about to be busy. It's about to be busy. But we'll see. Well, you guys will have part one to digest for a little while. And then maybe, like, sometime next week, we'll, we'll get you part two. Because I know I don't want to do part one and part two back-to-back. Because um, that's a lot. <laughs> like, for the lot. Toy Box Killer, we took, like, a solid week break in between yeah. part one and part two. Yeah, we did. And I'm going to need to do the same thing on this one. I want to say I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. But I didn't even fucking enjoy this episode. <laughs> It's just a lot, man. It is a lot, man. So I, yeah, I'm just gonna like, ah, oh, man. I need to eat some food and then. What time does DoorDash stop? Um, I don't know. I think it depends on how late the um the restaurant is open. Um, but anyways, if you made it to this point, thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> again. Um, but if you're interested, please follow us on our Instagram at TSRH Podcast. We also have an email address if you want to send us case recommendations, general comments, anything y'all feel like sending our way. That is tsrhpodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, TSRH Podcast on Facebook. Um, But yeah, that's my spiel. We will see you guys in part two probably sometime next week. Um, Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening. We love you dearly. Autumn, do you have anything else to say to the people? Nah, this one was fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking felt. All right. Well, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Um, Bye. Bye.